so hello everybody um thank you for watching this live stream if it's working uh, my name is jason norman i am program and events coordinator at the writers guild of alberta i want to uh, welcome everybody to this uh day one of two days with uh featuring finalists for the alberta literary awards um they're going to be reading uh, some of their work for you and um we have uh, a big lineup today and tomorrow. So we're gonna just get started. I just want to acknowledge before we move on that um, this this Zoom from my basement is taking place on uh, Treaty 6 territory and the Writers Guild of Alberta offices in Edmonton and Calgary um, take place on Treaty territory. I also just want to make a quick note um, that the, the Writers Guild of Alberta supports Black Lives Matter. And um, if people, that are watching um, would like to find out some more information about things they can do to support Black Lives Matter, specifically in Edmonton. They can go to blmyeg.ca. There's also the africacenter.ca. Um, those are the links I found that are through Edmonton, but it'll work for you if you're in Calgary or outside. Trust me. So um, we're gonna get right to it because we have like a dozen or so people. Um, that are going to be reading tonight. So, our first, uh, our first reader is is Katie Bickle. Katie Bickle is the author of Always Brave, Sometimes Kind, a debut novel shortlisted for the George Bounier Award for Fiction in the Alberta Literary Awards. Uh, previous chapters from this novel have won the Alberta Literary Award. Uh, the Howard O'Hagan Award, the Alberta Views Fiction Contest, the Writers Guild of Alberta's Emerging Writer Award, and have been published in various uh, literary journals. Katie is also a two-time Alberta Foundation of the Arts Artist Grant recipient and the owner of the Always Brave Creative, um, an agency offering resume preparation, website and brand design, and manuscript consultation. And you can learn more at katiebickle.com. So, Katie... Are you there? I'm here. Thank you very much. Take Jake. it away. Okay. Um, today I'm going to read from the chapter A Reason to Bend from Always Brave, Sometimes Kind. And this place takes place in 1999. Last night, Susan dreamed her eyes fell from their sockets like acorns from an oak. They caught in her throat and she choked while tilling the empty spaces with her thumb. Now she tears at her lids fingers pinching, sliding, pinching again, pulling splinters from the pupil. She blinks twice, winches, pushes the heel of her hand against the pink sting. His frown in the mirror is as familiar as the shaving cream he forgets to wash from under his ear. I think my contacts are stuck, she lies. Garrett moves her aside with two fingers and points. The case sits on the bathroom counter, sticky with dust, lenses inside, unused, Susan swallows, remembering the woody thickness of her dream. A gust of wind blows leaves from the tree outside the window until the aspen is naked. Morning noise drifts into the silence from the kitchen downstairs. Steel on wood, 11-year-old Iris eats cereal with raw milk, her spoon knocking a maple bowl, attention consumed by the science textbooks the homeschooler devours. From a tabletop radio, East Coast voices sing it's the end of the world. Susan worries about that radio, its signals and waves bouncing off the walls and all around the house, mutating their genes. 
Maybe that's why Susan's always changing. If it were off, she would hear daisies shrink into dried fists, the universal winter only two months away. None of this will matter, she tells her husband, not after Y2K. Capitalism will crack apart like a rotten squash and the pump jack will stop. Pump jack will stop, oil seeping into the land like it's like the earth's a great big sponge. The cosmic patterns say so, she tells him. If only she knew he knew how close she was to figuring out those damn mysterious lines. You might hear my dog every now and then. Excuse me. You haven't been taking your meds. I feel fine. Susan. She knocks knuckles against her forehead so he can hear her better. No drugs, no drugs. You know what they do. He holds her wrists between his thumb and index finger. His jaw makes Susan think of the boulder that sits on the top of the driveway, the rock that watches and waits and means home to her in its effort to guard those she loves. A gargoyle is trapped inside that uncarved stone, powerless to ward away the company's evil men. Susan will be sent away and soon. What she wonders is whether she'll come home to that stone. She starts to cry and the granite in Garrett's face softens. He sighs and imagines his exhale, blowing dandelion seedlings from her shoulder. None of this is his fault. She'd let go a thousand wishes for him if she could. Remember that first summer when my hair got caught in the spruce? She offers him this, the moment they met, two kids planting trees in Alberta's boreal. He lets go of her hands and she wraps her arms around his shoulders like a vine, runs fingers through the steely flecks of her husband's graying hair. Butterfly lashes rest on his bare chest. Thank God you found me, she whispers. I don't know what to do. The knot in his throat slides against the back of her head. Tell me what to do. He plants her in the potting shed after breakfast. Susan is meant to count seeds, but lets coriander spheres slip through her fingers in the same way dollars disappear from their joint checking account. She lights a herbal cigarette, clove and red raspberry leaf. Iris rides in a nearby pasture and Garrett walks the perimeter of the east grazing field, noticing things. He is good at noticing. Garrett can find a stranger's fresh footprints in the soil or spot the smallest growth of invasive glass, gas, grasses, their seeds tracked in from the threaded grooves of the company's hired boots. Garrett can see all these things, but not the lines drawn right there on the land, right in front of his face. But it's not just him. Sometimes it's as if the cosmic patterns don't want to be read. Susan has deciphered parts of them, but not the whole thing. The lines are scribbled all over, like how the earth looks like a stitched quilt from an airplane window. They draw a picture and tell her how to save this place if only she would grow tall enough to read them all at once. It's a good thing then that roots will soon, soon shoot, that soon shoot from the tips of her toes and let her head tower to the sky. She would do it for them, for Garrett and for Iris, no matter how much time it costs her beneath the bark. Her husband kicks a post as he inspects the barbs the fence's barbs, rusted two decades earlier than their 30-year guarantee. Hydrogen sulfide poisons everything, even lifeless metal. They both know it doesn't matter. The cattle are too ill to roam and too thin for anyone to steal. There are only nine cows left. In the neighboring fields, the company's pump jack lowers its dark head to drink, steel from the earth biting back into it like a wolf pup eating its mother. It keeps moving just despite her, that vicious pump jack. It knows she sees the signs. She tried to climb it once, the wind drawing lines in the snow all around. She had to get up high to read, but the beast kept in motion and shook her from its back. 
Sometimes it squeals and squeaks into the night, trying to keep seers like her far, far away. Her breath slows to the pump jacks, rises and falls. She panics at the breathlessness it's caused, but Garrett breaks its control of her, walking between them, all stable and sensible and strong. He greets Iris, trotting towards him on her horse. The man helps the child down from the mare, and the pair face one another as the girl digs into the dirt with the toe of her boot. Iris turns into the direction of her mother, and Garrett looks away. But when Iris wipes a tear from her sleeve, Garrett steps into the space between them, pulling Susan's daughter to his chest. This, Susan whispers to the wind, answering his morning question. Please, Garrett, just keep doing this. Thank you. Thank you, Katie. That was great. Um, I was going to say, I told everybody that we were going to do this before, but if everybody wants to I'm going to put it on gallery view. If everybody wants to wave at everybody watching, these are all the people that are going to be reading later today. They're saying hi to you right now. Um, I will also mention that if you are watching this on YouTube right now, uh, congratulations on figuring that out. Um, and this is also where you can watch the Alberta Literary Awards um, presentation, the, the uh, video. It's a video presentation this year. Um, if you are familiar with what we did last year, um, it will be sort of the same with a couple different um, twists to it, and we'll be premiering it live on on this YouTube channel, and um, and then people can watch the recording and uh, share it far and wide afterwards. So another wave from everybody, and then I will take it off speaker view if that worked. <laughs> Thanks so much, and um, and oh, did I say June 9th? Because June 9th, 8 p.m. is when um, the video presentation will be for the Alberta Literary Awards. So next up, we have Timothy Caulfield. Timothy Caulfield is a Canada Research Chair in Health Law and Policy, a professor in the Faculty of Law and the School of Public Health, and Research Director of the Health Law Institute at the University of Alberta. His interdisciplinary research on topics like stem cells, genetics, research ethics, the public representations of science and public health policy has allowed him to publish over 350 academic articles. He has won numerous academic science communication and writing awards and is a fellow of the Royal Society of Canada and the Canadian Academy of Health Sciences. He contributes frequently to the popular press and is the author of two national bestsellers, The Cure for Everything, Untangling the Twisted Messages about Health, Fitness and Happiness from Penguin in 2012, and is Gwyneth Paltrow wrong about everything when celebrity culture and science clash from Penguin in 2015. His most recent book is Relax, Damn It, A User's Guide to the Age of Anxiety from Penguin Random House 2020. Um, and that is what is shortlist is the finalist for the Wilfred Eggleston um, Award for Nonfiction Book. Caulfield is also the host and co-producer of the award-winning documentary TV show, A User's Guide to Cheating Death, which has now been shown in over 60 countries, including streaming on Netflix in North America. Timothy, take it away. Well, thank you, thank you so much. And first of all, I wanna say I'm, I'm honored uh, to be here. I'm honored to be, uh, to be, have the opportunity to read with this fantastic group. Go Alberta authors. Uh, I am going to read from my, my new book, uh, Relax, Damn It. Uh, and this, this book is really a book about the daily decisions that we, that we, all, that we all make. Uh, the grander ambition of the book is, 
is an exploration of all the social forces that that really twist how we see the world, you know, whether it's cognitive biases, uh, ideology, uh, the spread uh, of, of misinformation in the context of, of health, you name it. I, I try to look at all of those complex, those complex forces. Uh, but the gimmick, the gimmick is it play, takes place over a typical day. And, and I, I use those kind of decisions that we all make, hopefully to make, to make it relatable. Uh, and I look at some some very serious decisions that we all make, but I also look at at frivolous ones, and that's what I'm going to talk about today. A pretty frivolous decision that we all make. Uh, so so here we go. 6:50 a.m. Get dressed. Once upon a time, I owned handmade custom leather pants, and I wore them in public. More than that, I wore them on stage. <laughs> they were tight. As I said, custom. I was fronting a new wave band during that nanosecond of history when that wasn't a horrifyingly embarrassing thing to admit. It was agreed upon by everyone in the band that getting custom leather pants was a very new wavy thing to do. We each got a different color. Seriously, we did this. Shortly after our first all leather gig, a fan approached to tell me she'd enjoyed the set. I was feeling pretty rock star, but just as she turned to leave, she pointed to my crotch and said, by the way, you can't wear underwear with those, especially tidy whities This unsolicited advice led to an emergency band meeting. After carefully inspecting each other's, each other's rears in different lighting conditions, we really did this, uh, we all decided she was right. The underwear had to go. The under, underwear lines were simply not acceptable. Thus, all future gigs were performed commando, sans undies. Now, I've been calling these pants leather, but in reality, they were made from a leather-like material. It was like wearing tight-fitting plastic garbage bags. The stage was hot. I, was, uh, I jumped around and sweated like a pig. We were five young men who rarely washed our clothes. You can do the math. When I unzipped my pants to pee, it was as if I was standing over a compost bin filled with old cabbage. Uh, I believe it was our light man who put an end to the leather madness. Get rid of those effing pants or get rid of me. I remember that like it was yesterday. Why did I tell this story? Well, underpants are a fine idea if comfort and the control of odor are your concern. So my recommendation is to wear them as I have done every single day since my leather pants fiasco. Surveys suggest that as many as 25% of us go commando some of the time and a whopping 7% live sans undies all the time. There are no health risks associated with this practice, but, but yuck. Uh, and, and if this is how you want to swing through the day, fine. But please wash your pants if you're sitting next to me on the plane. To be honest, if you are a male, the only big under, undergarment decision is boxers or briefs. There has been a bit of research, but not as much as one would expect given the intensity of the boxer versus brief debate that suggests that snug underwear, such as the classic tidy whities results in a higher scrotal temperature and as a result, a reduced sperm count. A 2018 study of men attending fertility clinics found that those who reported wearing boxers had a higher sperm concentration. 
Other studies have come to less pessimistic conclusions, finding that the selection of underwear had no effect on time to pregnancy for couples aiming for, for that goal. If that isn't your goal, then wear whatever you find comfortable. If you are trying for pregnancy, going with boxers might help a small amount, but the data isn't conclusive. It couldn't hurt. I could find no research on the attractiveness of skin tight, leather-like plastic pants. Thanks very much. Thank you, Tim, for that uh, very important work that you do. <laughs> it's crucial, it's crucial. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh my goodness. Okay, we will move on to our next um, reader. Tyler Enfield. Tyler Enfield is an Edmonton-based writer, photographer, and filmmaker. His most recent book, Like Rum Drunk Angels, is the 2021 winner of the Western Writers of America Award. His previous novel, Matter Carmine, won the High Plains Book Award and was a finalist for the Robert Croach City of Edmonton Book Prize. He is also the co-writer and director of Invisible World, produced by the National Film Board, winner of three Alberta Film Awards. He lives with his wife and two daughters. And Like Rum Drunk Angels is a finalist for this year's Robert Croach City of Edmonton Book Prize. So, Tyler. Yep. Yep. Take, take it away. Thanks, Jason. Uh, so I'm going to read from Like Rum Drunk Angels, which is um, an offbeat, slightly magical retelling of the story of Aladdin, uh, rewritten as an American Western. And it takes place in 1884. And it features uh, a boy named Francis Blackstone. He's 14 years old, and he's fallen madly in love with the governor's daughter. But he has no money. And so uh, with the help of his brother Samuel and his best friend Ned, they set out to find his fortune. Uh, and very early on, Francis realizes that uh, his philosophy is anything for love, absolutely anything. So all conventions go out the window, even if that means robbing trains and becoming celebrity train robbers, uh, gentlemen bandits. So I'm gonna read you the chapter that begins with them. Um, that introduces their very first attempt at a train robbery. So it begins. They enter through the back door of the train and find the passenger car as loud and buoyant like a dinner party with everyone engaged in some form of exchange while a waiter in a tuxedo pushes a drink cart down the aisle, taking orders and pouring elaborate colorful concoctions into long stem crystal. No one appears to notice the gang. Francis steps forward. He asks aloud for everyone's attention, but his voice, unfortunately, fails to crest the din of merriment in the car, and he may as well be reciting Shakespeare to a tree full of toucans for all the good it does. Francis raises his pistol above his head and fires a single round through the roof of the car. All conversation ceases. This is an important moment. I'm now fully born, he thinks. I am ready. My name is Francis Blackstone, and we are three quarters of the Blackstone Temple Gang. I'll kindly ask you to put your hands in the air, for this is a San Joaquin County train robbery. Next scene. His brother Samuel walks down the aisle with his upturned hat before him, working the passengers to the right. Their best friend Ned walks directly behind, working those opposite. Francis continues his announcements from back of the car. If you're a working man with calloused hands, you have nothing to worry about. You can keep your effects. Women, wedding bands, heart-shaped jewels, any items from your sweetheart are yours to keep. 
all else goes in the hat. Thank you, folks. Thank you. Just place them in here. Thank you. An old woman touches Francis's wrist as he goes by. I just want to say it's so wonderful how you're going about this. Well, thank you, ma'am. We do our best. Not like this other riff-raff calling themselves outlaws. No manners whatsoever. It's young men like you who give us hope. Francis pats her hand. And you have such a fine smile, she says. You're too kind, ma'am. You truly are. Now, if you could just empty your other pocket there. Perfect. I thank you. Ned reaches behind a child's ear and a silver brooch materializes in his hand. There follows a smattering of applause. Now the rest of you, Francis calls out. There's a list going around. Put your name and address down. We'll pay you back when we can. If you're not sure how to write, see my brother Samuel and he'll get you settled. Put your hand up, Samuel. That's him there. A portly red-faced man with heavy jowls and a cheap suit raises a hand as Francis comes even with his seat. Gus Simons, Daily Journal, says the man. Yeah. Would you mind, says the man, removing a notepad and a pencil from his breast pocket, if I ask you a question or two? Next scene. Just a few more moments, says Gus Simons, standing behind the tripod with his head buried beneath the camera's cloth hood. This pose is getting heavy, says Francis. It looks like nothing, but you hold a pistol out long enough and it's like a bucket of bricks. I hear you, says Gus. I hear you. These tin types are slow as molasses, but we're almost there. Francis turns his head, addressing the car in general. Sorry, folks. I didn't realize this was going to take so long. No bother at all, say the passengers. One of them, a finely dressed gentleman with palmated hair that's parted down the middle, a smudge of a mustache and little brass rim glasses, has volunteered to stand opposite Francis's pistol with his hands in the air, though the man's face is turned to the camera. And we got it, says Gus Simons, emerging from the hood. Now let's get another with the three of you together, right over here by the window. And let's see, let's try someone new. Who would like to join us for this one? Gus taps at his chin. How to choose? Row upon row, the sea of hands waving, waving like posies in the breeze. Next scene. After the holdup, the gang rejoins the conductor outside and begins repair of the tracks. Gus Simons follows close behind, tripod on his shoulder, huffing about and trying to play it smooth. The truth is, he can't believe his luck. It's finally here, the big one, the scoop every reporter lives for. By ones and twos, the passengers disembark out of interest, out of boredom, before long, most have begun pitching in with the repair of the tracks. It's a work party. Earnest, broad-shouldered men throw back their suspenders, grab shovels and sledgehammers and crates of iron ties. Women cluster beneath parasols and wave half-moon fans while the waiter in his tuxedo, a suit of fantastic origin, impervious to wrinkles, odors, insects, spills, goes about in a solemn prance, delivering trays of cold pork sandwiches and lemonade. Gus Simons is in a state. He's everywhere at once, taking photos, scribbling, sweating. Whenever he stops long enough to consider the image plates within his satchel, his heart pounds so hard he can barely breathe. Forget the journal, thinks Simons. He's going straight to not post with this one. They'll reprint in Washington, Philadelphia, Boston, Chicago. He glances about for another shot, something he may have missed, but feels confident he's covered everyone at this point. Passengers, train staff, the gang. He has group shots of every possible combination too. Posed in freestyle, silly faces, human pyramids, everyone jumping at once. He returns his attention to the standout, young Francis Blackstone. If he plays this right, hitches himself to the right star, Gus Simons will never have to introduce himself again. Let's get one last photograph of you, Francis, alone with your pistol, says Simons, dipping his head beneath the hood. Just aim it at the sky. Perfect. Hold that. An idea strikes him. 
It's accompanied by something like a sizzling blue current, also a general intimation of success. Otherwise, Gus Simons has no way of knowing he's about to take the single most recognizable photograph of his century. On second thought, says Simons, let's have you point that thing at the camera. Thank you. Thank you, Tyler. That was great. And uh, I just want to say um, hi to Janny Edwards, if Janny's watching. Hi, Janny. Um, we, tr we, tr we tried to get through some technical difficulties today, but we just weren't able to, to fix it. But um, maybe we'll get, we'll get Jenny for the next one. Um, next up, we have Lee, I believe. E-F-G-A-J. Uh, Lee, <laughs> Lee Caverne is an award-winning author of short stories and novels. Her short stories have garnered, garnered the CBC Literary Award, Western Magazine Award, Hazel Mills Memorial Short Fiction Prize, and the Howard O'Hagan uh, Award. After, after all, selected for Canada Reads and nominated for Alberta Book Awards, The Matter of Sylvie, nominated for Alberta Book Awards, and the Ottawa Relit Award. Lush Triumphant finalist 2018, Best of the Net nomination 2018. Her work has been produced for CBC Radio, published in Grain, Event, Descant, Air Canada, En Route, Tishman Review, Globe and Mail, Subterrain, Loft 112, Radical Books, and online at Joyland, Found Press, and Little Fiction. Lee, are you there? I am. Thank you, Jason. And, and Lee, you, your short story, um, Players, is a finalist for the Howard O'Hagan Award this year. Take it away. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks very much, Jason. And thank you to everyone out there in YouTube land that's uh, spending their Wednesday evening with us. That's very big of you. So I'm going to just read uh, from the start of my story called Players. And this is about a family that smokes together, players. When I still lived at home, after dinner, I would go down to the Rexall drugstore. The drugstore was on the corner next to Olympia House of Pool, where my father taught me the stealth art of snooker. He also schooled several swaggering boys I knew from high school who dared challenge him at the game. Whenever we went back into Olympia House, the boys looked at my father with nothing short of adoration in their eyes. For him, not me, I hadn't earned that yet. I didn't go into the pool house tonight. I only peered through the crimson half moon lettering on the greasy windows to see who was inside when I took the long way around to get my dad's cigars at Rexall Drugs. Get the red El Producto, my father told me even though I knew that a thousand times over. Not the blue, he reminded me as I went out the door. My father was particular about what he put into his lungs. I told that to the older woman at Rexall Drugs, whose hair was only a shade lighter than her indigo smock. She set out the first El Producto she could find, blue. No, the red kind, I said. She squatted behind the counter where the reserved cigarettes and cigars were. It's the last one, she said, slapping the box on the counter. I asked her to order some more for my dad. Please, thank you, you're welcome. My father's evening cigar was a ceremonious thing. 
Certain combinations were needed for his nightly ritual. A cup of coffee sat on the fold-out TV tray next to his red velvet recliner. A neatly folded newspaper on his lap, hockey night in Canada on the television. Stretched out on the sofa, I watched my father position the cigar in his mouth, curling his lips around it like how a horse shows you its long yellow teeth. My father fished around with one hand in his shirt pocket, then around on the TV tray under the television guide. He ran his palms one at a time along the sides of his velvet recliner, checking between the cushions, finally rummaging through the outsides of his trouser pockets to decipher the contents inside with blind groping fingers. He did all this without disrupting himself in the least from his chair or losing his iron-jawed grip from around his prized cigar in search of wooden matches. Nor did his eyes stray from Frank Mahovlich on the television. My mother was in the kitchen with her cup of coffee, Bic lighter, and Peter Jackson's cigarettes. Whenever I went to Rexall for her, I asked the indigo smocked woman for a man for my mother, please and thanks. The woman would pluck a package of Peter Jackson's from the shelf, then burst into a fellow smoker's cough laugh like I was the funniest person she'd met. I liked her and her indigo hair all the more. More than that, she made me feel like a human being worthy of nicotine respect. Unbeknownst to her and my mother, I got my strong short cigarettes from the vending machine at the Shell gas station where my mother and I both worked. My mother did the books. I womaned the tills after school. My teenage arms, the right kind of skinny, so that I could push my arms strategically up into the sharp metal bowels of the vending machine. A perilous maneuver if you lacked my steel nerve skill and skeletal appendage. I could extract any number of free packs of cigarettes like an immoral surgeon harvesting healthy kidneys for resale. I didn't resell mine. I limited my personal supply to two packs a week so as to avoid suspicion. Often, I chose John Clare Special with the slick black and gold cover, carcinogenic elegance. I changed my selection to avoid detection from my mother who paid no attention to what brand I smoked. She preferred the long game of her man Jackson's to my short strong player game. Much to the bafflement of Bill, the sales rep, the sales rep who came weekly to empty the money box and restock the cigarettes in the vending machine. He could not figure out why the money was short every single week. Honestly, I have no idea, Bill, my mother said, apologizing, even though it was clearly not her fault. No one other than her and Bill had the key to the vending machine. And from Bill's lit up eyes, whenever he saw my mother, I could see that she was beyond reproach in his mind. And I'll leave it there. Thank you. Thank you, Lee. And where can people, if when people want to read the rest of that, where, or when I'm with, I want to read the story themselves, where was this published? This was published in Grain Magazine. It comes out of Saskatchewan. So you'd have to, you could probably find it at um, a good bookstore, a good indie bookstore, Grain Magazine. Great. Thanks.
And uh, we will move on to our next reader, who is Annette Lapointe. Annette Lapointe has lived in rural Saskatchewan, Quebec City, St. John's, Saskatoon, Winnipeg, where she earned her PhD, and South Korea. She now lives in Treaty 8 territory on the traditional lands of the Beaver people and teaches at Grand Prairie Regional College. She has previously published two acclaimed novels, Stolen and Whitetail Shooting Gallery, and a short story collection, You Are Not Needed Now. Her latest novel is And This Is the Cure, and it is shortlisted for the Georges Bounier Award for Fiction, if I got that right. So, Annette. I guess that's my cue, and this is my book, which I'm holding up with its microphone on the cover. Uh, this novel is about Alison Winter, who is a radio personality, sometime punk singer, and somewhat wayward mother. The part I am reading today is from chapter three, and it essentially brings us up to the moment as to what has happened in the past, and so it seemed a good choice. So chapter three is simply called The Cure. It features Alison Winter, radio host, sometime punk singer, wayward mother. Uh, she has returned to Winnipeg, having received a call to come and rescue her daughter. So ch this is chapter three, The Cure. The progression of events up to now is approximately this. My name is Allison Winter. I was born in Manitoba in the 1970s to parents who were getting ready to go forth into the world and witness for Christ and the Anabaptists. So we did that for years. And then we came back to Canada and then to Manitoba during a lull in my parents' ministries. I didn't go to school except at our kitchen table, but there were other people around and I was allowed to go outside by myself which later my parents probably considered a mistake, but by then it was too late. I married Ethan Hopner in an after supper ceremony at our church on the grounds that I was pregnant and that this would be the best decision for all of us. We would be supervised thereafter and assisted in child rearing until Ethan finished high school and then we would carry on. Our family, early constituted, would make us adults, members of the community. We were already members of the church He'd been baptized in the same church we were married in three years before. I'd been baptized in Burundi while my parents were on mission. And from the perspective of the church, we were adults already. Our parents were less than impressed with us, but they signed the necessary documents. My, my birth certificate got misplaced so they could certify that I was 16, which I wasn't yet. That marriage lasted two weeks. I walked out of Ethan's parents' house down the highway into town and found the police station, where I told them that I was 15, that I'd been forced into marriage, that my parents had left the country, and that I was now the government's responsibility. Later, I moved into Winnipeg and joined a punk band. I divorced Ethan in 2002. I hadn't seen him regularly in a decade, but he wasn't free to marry until I signed the papers, so I signed them. Ethan married Claudia Hardy. I had my daughter Hannah and then some other things happened, and after that, I handed Hannah over to Ethan and Claudia. 
I surrendered to inpatient treatment with raw places scratched all over my body and one still intact daughter who just acquired a very nice family that didn't include me. I started doing radio in the early 2000s in the interval when the Innocents, my band, weren't on tour. I knew sound equipment and I was reasonably competent. They liked my work, said I had a radio voice. After I was on my own, out of the band and out of the hospital, Rosemary in the Winnipeg office recommended me for a junior producer job in Toronto. I did 18 months filling in for a half dozen people, the oldest, most junior producer running segments for anybody who needed something run or doing boards if someone called in sick. I met Jay Beaton. He pushed me up against the sound booth wall after his show and said, I'd really like to hate fuck you. I have problems with judgment. For instance, I decided that was an appealing come on. I took him up on it and I got to be a regular producer and writer on his show, The Cure for Ordinary, which was a break it was widely agreed I did not deserve. They had no idea. Then Jay went down in fire and blood and police lights and we had to go on air on 16 minutes notice without him. So I sat down behind the microphone and went out live nationally on what was then the third most popular show on Canadian public broadcasting. They put me on the radio because I was sacrificial. I'd been doing music journalism for a few years and I sounded clean enough to wash out the worst toxic ooze from the studio, but no one thought I'd last more than an episode or two. And when they cleaned house in Jay's aftermath, I'd go too. Well, they relaunched Jay's show under my name in October, The Cure with Allison Winter, airs weekdays 9 to 10.30 anti-Meridian, rolling across the time zones, broadcasting from the city of Toronto. Ethan and Claudia stayed in Winnipeg. They bought a house in glossy Lindenwoods. Claudia's son from her previous marriage lived with them on weekends. They were stable. Claudia and Ethan decided, and then politely informed me, that my autobiography, best-selling, the very first thing to give me real money in the bank was not going to be acceptable reading for our collective daughter. Not until she was older and they talked about Allison's problems with her and she was ready. Hannah was not ready for her stepbrother to develop quiet symptoms of his own. Claudia and Claudia's ex dealt with him and talked to him and suggested that if he wasn't going to take his medication, he shouldn't come by the house. I had a certain amount of sympathy for him. It's hard to stay on your meds. The first months, it's like something chewing on your brain. These days, I do okay. Nobody whispers in my ear. I only ever very briefly thought members of my family were dangerous. The only one I was ever scared of enough to attack was Hannah. And I stopped myself before I, something happened in any permanent way. Hannah's stepbrother came to his mother and stepfather's house in the middle of the afternoon on a Tuesday. He argued with his mother. He hit his mother, Claudia, with a kitchen chair. He hit her with it a large number of times. Sometime after that first incident, Ethan came into the kitchen, encountered his stepson, and was stabbed repeatedly with a kitchen knife. The stepson was in the house for three more hours as the police measured it before he killed himself. Hannah was in the basement. She didn't at any point call the police. When they asked her, she said she'd had her headphones on. The neighbors found her when they came to investigate why the front door was open. 
and found Claudia fatally beaten in the living room, Ethan stabbed in the kitchen, and Claudia's son from her first marriage naked in the bathtub where he'd cut his wrists. And that's just everything that happened up to now. Thanks. Yeah, that's just chapter three. Or is that what you said? Or three or four? Yeah, that's chapter three. Chapter three. And it's just catching us all up. Uh, thanks, Annette. And sorry for the for the technical thingy that happened there. Um, we're going to see if it's, it's going to stick like this. OK, I think it's back on me now. OK, perfect. Um, we'll go to our next reader, Clem Martini. Clem Martini is an award-winning playwright, novelist, and screenwriter with over 30 plays uh, and 13 books of fiction and nonfiction to his credit, including the W.O. Mitchell Award-winning Bitter Medicine, a graphic memoir of mental illness, The Unraveling, and The Comedian. He teaches in the School of Creative and Performing Arts at the University of Calgary. And I will also say that, I have it written down here, um, your play Cantata is uh, a finalist for the Gwen Ferris Ringwood Award for Drama. So, Clem. Great. Thanks for that introduction. And, and uh, I feel I'm in, uh, in great company here. Lots of, lots of um, really great uh, writing happening tonight. Uh, uh, so, Cantata is uh, the portions that I'm going to read uh, involve two brothers, two adult brothers. Martin and Dennis, who are uh, trying to navigate a situation. The situation is that uh, Dennis um, has lived with schizophrenia for uh, almost 40 years, lives with his mother, and his mother um, is uh, struggling with uh, Alzheimer's. So um, Martin and Dennis meet in a, a Tim's coffee shop. Martin says, uh, are you, are you going to drink your coffee? Dennis says, it's, it's good, although I prefer Tim's. I don't know if you've noticed, but um, things have come to a head, Dennis. Uh, when I brought mom to the hospital for her last assessment, they determined that she no longer has the capacity to live independently. I've spent almost 40 years living with mom. Martin says, on Friday, I'll drive her to the hospital. She won't return. Dennis says, okay. Martin says, uh, you'll be on your own unless you want someone to live with you or, or move in with us. Dennis says, well, last winter, mom and I drove to Bonas Park together. I wanted to sit by the lagoon, but it was too windy. So we bought a couple of hot chocolates and, and she and I sat in the car, the motor running, drinking our drinks, watching people skate, listening to Christmas music. When we returned to the apartment, the wind had picked up and it had begun to snow. I wouldn't be alive if it weren't for her. You understand that she can't live at the apartment anymore. Dennis says, I guess what you're telling me is I failed. Martin says, what? I couldn't take care of her. That's what you're telling me. No, that's not what I'm telling you. I'm telling you something completely different. You're telling me I've screwed up. I'm telling you that she can't stay in the apartment because it's too dangerous for her to stay, that it's, it's beyond both of us. And I'm telling you it's dangerous for you. Every day the situation gets worse. It's, it's affecting your mental health. The doctors 
increased your antidepressants, you're depressed, and why not? The situation is totally depressing. She's awake nights, thinking who knows what, losing everything, forgetting everything, taking tumbles. You put your back out, lifting her. She can't remember to take her medication. The toilet and sink are backing up. The entire place reeks. She won't let me help. She won't let anyone help. It's Everything's falling apart. You can see that it's not good anymore, can't you? And Dennis says, yes. Are you going to be okay? He says, I guess. I move to the next scene. Dennis is alone in his apartment at night. He says, I watched the TV show late at night. A man asked a woman, do you want to control your feelings or do you want them to control you? I can't control what I feel and I'm not able to act on my feelings or I'd be sent to an asylum and they'd throw away the key. I own an old Viewmaster plastic viewing machine with eye holes at one end to look into and a slot on top, which you insert a flat cardboard wheel with tiny plastic slides. And as you depress a lever on the side, the disc spins about and the slides rotate around and around with each click of the lever. The oldest package of discs that I own is titled Man on the Moon and the Apollo Project. It's dated 1969. That's when I received it as a Christmas present. I remember presenting to my class in elementary school about the moon project and lunar excursion module about man stepping into the future. Everything looked so clear. The astronaut climbed out of the excursion module into the darkness of the moon's rocky surface. Click, he looked about at the stars and the earth hanging in the sky and click, he planted a flag. He holds up the Viewmaster. Here's my view, my life in the Viewmaster. Click. I'm born. Martin says, I don't know how to take her there. Dennis says, click. I get diagnosed with schizophrenia. Martin says, it's two in the morning. Dennis says, click. I wait in the psych ward in a hospital gown, trying to figure out what to do with the rest of my crazy, useless life. Martin says, I'm awake in my bed. Dennis, click. I move back home with my mother and click, click, click. 39 years fly by. Martin says, and every time I think, about the impending journey to the hospital. And it's impossible to stop thinking about it. I'm filled with dread. Dennis says, click, she develops dementia. And I try to help her, but I can't. Martin says, I try to organize my thoughts. Dennis says, click, I transform into Judas and betray her. Click, I turn her out of the apartment. Click, click, click. Martin says, I've discussed with my mother how the transition will proceed, that it will take time, that it will mean being registered through the emergency ward and signed into the transition unit until her assessment has been completed. And only after the assessment has been finalized, will she be offered a placement at an assisted living facility where they'll provide reliable medical care and a comfortable living arrangement. And she's finally agreed. But what does any of that mean, really? She's agreed, yes, reluctantly, unhappily, but will she even remember the conversation later this morning when I arrive at the apartment? Will she remember it the second we walk out the door? If she forgets or refuses to leave at the last minute, what am I to do? What if at the hospital she tells me she's changed her mind? If she turns about and shoves her walker out the hospital's main entrance, what should I do? I lie awake, turning this these things over and over and over. At three in the morning, I rise and take my place at the dining room table of my darkened home. I fire up the computer and prepare a list of the problems. There are dozens. I scroll down to a fresh page and begin a list of alternatives. 
There are none. The day approaches and I'm sick with anxiety, sick with dread. I drive to the Y and run the track. He begins running on the spot, past the treadmills, past the elliptical machines, past the seniors lounging against the metal railing, chatting past the stationary bikes, the balance balls, the chin up beams, the seated leg curl and the stairmaster. I try to think things through. I try to find a way forward that presents a strategy that won't result in Dennis relapsing or my mother feeling betrayed. I can't see a good outcome. I focus on running. I focus on breathing. I wait for my brain to clear. He continues running. One more lap. Lights down. That's the end of act one. Thanks very much. Thank you so much, Clem. That was great. Thank you. Our next reader is Peter Midgley. Peter Midgley is a freelance editor and the author and translator of several scholarly books, children's books, plays, magazine articles, and poetry, including Let Us Not Think of Them as Barbarians, published by New West Press. He lives in Edmonton, and you are here because um, your piece called Bird um, is a finalist for the John White Memorial Essay Award and uh, this is uh, an award for a previously unpublished work. And when the jury read it, they didn't know the it's red blind, this, this uh, award category. So they don't know who is submitting it. So uh, you're a finalist for that one, which you already knew, but I'm just telling everybody that's listening. So take it away, Peter. Thank you, Jason. And thanks to the WGA and to the jurors. Um, this story is about the first few days with my foster parrot and African Grey. Uh, for those who don't know it, African Greys are among the most trafficked birds and the most abandoned birds in the world. And because of they parrots, they outlive their owners. So please, if you can, do donate to bird shelters and help to rehome them where you can. So, Bird. Let's call him Bird. I'll tell you his real name, but I fear for your safety. He arrived in the dead of winter with barely a covering on his body, a plucked chicken tucked away in a corner of his cage, stressed to the final feather. It's been years now since we took the poor waif in, but I remember that day and those first few weeks that followed as if I had just walked back to my car on that February afternoon. We sat down for an interview at the foster home, my wife, my bird, and I. Across from the table sat the woman from the shelter. We all had to get to know each other first. We needed vetting, you see, to see whether we would take adoption seriously. The woman from the shelter needed to assess us and to see whether we would be a match for bird. After all, African greys are very picky about who they bond with. It was awkward, and Bird was at his best behavior. So was I. Owning an African grey had been a childhood dream, and this was my chance. Of all the birds imaginable, African greys have a reputation for being difficult to keep in captivity. Oh, well, that's because they're not meant to be. Bird and I exchanged initial ple pleasantries. Bird said, hello. I returned the greeting. 
Bird said, go to bed. I said, it's a bit early for that, but how about a cat nap? The mention of cats must have upset him, for next he said, shut up, bird, and sculpted off my arm across the table and back into his cage. From there, he kept a watchful eye on me. When I went to pick him up again, he obliged without fuss. After that, he sat quietly on my shoulder. When we'd finished talking to the woman from the shelter, Bird stepped onto my hand as I put him on, in his cage. He sat there quietly while the humans took care of paperwork. Remember to spend a lot of time with him in the first few days, the woman from the shelter said. He needs to hear your voice and get used to your touch. Parrots respond to touch. It helps them bond. The tone of her voice sounded familiar. It reminded me of the instructor from Lamar's class. Don't panic, just breathe. Thousands of men have survived childbirth. That should have been my first clue. At the door, the woman handed me his medical records. In the space reserved for his name, it said X. To the left of that, it said, AKA Y. There was a line through that too. And to the left of that, it said, AKA B. That too was struck out. And to the left of that, yeah, that should have been my second clue. Let him get to know you. He has to get used to your touch. The woman reminded me as pointedly as we drove off. I took it as advice. I should have considered it a third warning. As soon as we brought him into our house, birds started screeching like a newborn. By the end of day one, I called the woman from the shelter. Just give him time, she said. He needs to adapt to his new surroundings. You see, that's the problem. I cannot get used to the new surroundings, I said, and reached for industrial earplugs. For the next two days, Bird kept to his corner of the cage. I kept to my space. At least he wasn't screeching anymore. Gradually, we reached an understanding. He no longer screeched when I approached the cage with food. I did not approach without consent. Slowly, we inched closer. Bird eyed me with suspicion and withdrew to the furthest corner of the cage. On day five, I stuck my hand into the cage. It might have well as well have been Hannibal Lecter's cell. There was a rapid flurry of feathers, the yell of a harpy eagle, and an unkind word or ten that would later be repeated to visitors. I retreated to my corner. Bird looked at me. Those eyes demanded Chianti. And I'll leave it there. Thank you so much, Peter. That was great. Um, I wanted to uh, I just wanted to remind everyone watching that um, there are uh, more readers tomorrow. So if we didn't finish a category today, we're probably going to have the rest of the people from that category in tomorrow's reading. So um, just we have just about almost every single um, every single finalist got back to us. So just wanted to remind people of that. So, 
our next reader uh, is Beth Sanders. Beth Sanders is an award-winning city planner who works with citizens, city government, business, and community organizations looking for practical ways to navigate the complexity of city life so they can hear each other and make better cities. She is the author of Nest City, How Cities Serve Citizens and Citizens Serve Cities. I practiced that earlier. And um, Nest City is a finalist for the Robert Croach City of Edmonton Book Prize, uh, along with with Tyler, who you heard earlier. So, Beth, are you there? I am here. All Take is away. good on the technical front. Good. So, thank you for that, Jason. Um, I'm here with my book, Nest City, and uh, I think my my confession is about. Gosh, I stopped counting about 15 years ago when I had spent. 17,000 hours at city council meetings across the Canadian prairies and found myself always observing and witnessing like what is this dynamic this thing that we have when we make cities for ourselves and it took quite a while but then a book came out of it so I'm going to start today with just some some words in the introduction so how nest city start so the nest here is a metaphor peter i'm thinking it's quite apt that i'm following you your bird piece with a nest so um this starts with some nesting instincts one spring morning my 13 year old son called me to come see the geese walking to school i didn't respond right away and continued to fold laundry he called again with more vigor so i joined him beside his abandoned breakfast at the kitchen window and he wasn't joking. Two adult geese and five yellow goslings were making their way, their way down the sidewalk. They crossed the road, turned a corner, and started to head down another street. This was usually the time when I head out for a walk to the ravine that runs through my neighborhood before I get to work. So I followed the geese. They seemed to know where they were going. And the route took them directly through a construction area where city contractors were fixing pipes and sidewalks and roads in our neighborhood. And the geese stopped to tuck in between two houses along the way, perhaps because of the noise, the bustle, the vibration of the construction site and the heavy machinery. I zipped ahead to tip off one of the workers and instantly this 20 year old wanted to know where they were. He spotted them and then he went to talk to his boss. And before I knew it, the contractors had stopped their work. Being geese, they didn't know that the road was closed and they waddled through the construction site while the workers watched in silence. And these geese didn't know that the next two roads to cross were both four lanes of busy morning traffic. And the 20 year old construction worker and the 50 year old construction boss and I took it upon ourselves to step into traffic and clear the path. The drivers were raging mad, and then they were thrilled. We helped the city stop for a moment to make a safe crossing for the geese. We did not direct the geese. They knew where they were going. We just stepped out into traffic and followed our sense of direction as much as the geese did. We knew the initial reaction of the city would be the anger of morning commuters, yet knew it was the right thing to do. Sometimes what needs to be done needs an escort, a path cleared. 
and the 50-year-old construction boss walked with the geese to the ravine and down the river to make sure they arrived safely, and he followed a call from his heart. But this notion of escort for me, this notion of being with what wants to happen but not making it happen is a new form of leadership. It's about letting what wants to happen happen. It's about revealing what wants to happen. It is a form of stewardship that does not protect and conserve, but rides alongside. And it's a form of guiding that clears the way without directing the way. And it's a form of leadership that understands that being part of something bigger than the personal, the mine or yours, means following that something bigger. Moreover, it's a form of relationship that involves being in explicit relationship with something bigger. David White's The Three Marriages articulates the relationships we each have with self, with work, and a significant other, each coming with spoken and unspoken vows. And as I read White's book, the voice inside my head kept calling out, there is a fourth marriage with community. There are spoken and unspoken vows in our relationships with the communities in which we live our neighborhoods, towns, villages, and cities? And what would it mean to be courageously smitten with our cities? What would it mean to have spoken and unspoken vows with our cities? And Jason, I'll stop there. Okay, that sounds good to me. Thank you so much. We had nest, we had bird, and then we had nest. That was perfect. Didn't plan that earlier. Um, we have two readers left, I believe. Um, and our next reader is Barbara Scott. Barbara Scott has had the great good fortune of devoting most of her adult working life to creative writing as an author, editor, and teacher. Her book, The Quick, won the City of Calgary W.O. Uh, Mitchell Book Prize and the WGA Howard O'Hagan Award for Best Collection of Short Fiction. In 2015, she received the Lois Hole Award for Editorial Excellence. Her first novel, The Taste of Hunger, will be published by Freehand Books in fall of 2022. And Barbara Scott's um, uh, essay, Black Diamond, is uh, also a finalist for the John White Memorial Essay Award uh, for the that blind, blind judge category. So Barbara. Hello. Take um, it away. Am I am I on? I think so. Oh good. <clears throat> well this is a very quiet essay. Um, it was it written about a year of uh, astounding loss in my life uh, and the small moments of grace that can come out in those times that just transform you. Black Diamond, July 2003. I leave Calgary in evening sunlight that is just beginning to thicken as it does in late July. In the rearview mirror, Calgary's high rises shrink to a Legoland of concrete cubes. The black top abandons its straight prairie lines to snug up against the soft curves of the foothills. And my mind loops ahead of me, anticipating every turn. The slough that flashes deep blue at the bottom of the valley, the sudden opening onto the broken teeth of the distant Rockies. I am headed for Black Diamond and know this road by heart but I've never seen the land quite like this. At the end of a five-year drought that burned the fields so brown you thought they would never green again. And yet here they are, lush with the June rains that this year fell and fell as if they would never cease. 
The sloughs are brimming over, lapping at fields that are still a brilliant green, even after the crisping heat of July. The cattle are fat and brown, the ducks so gorged they can barely lift themselves in flight. Bugs splat full of juice against the windshield. The abundance of all this growth is somehow accusatory, and inside it I feel scraped and empty, pared down to the bone, a skeleton mistakenly invited to the feast. Not two hours ago, my husband and I sat in our family room and quietly, politely even, agreed that whatever comfort, whatever succor we need, we will have to find from others because we have nothing left to give. I do not know if a marriage can survive this kind of bald admission, and that uncertainty is part of what has driven me here. I am not sad or angry. I am numb, even to the beauty of the landscape that rolls past my windows. But the almost aggressive plenitude reminds me that I don't know when or what I last ate. I don't feel hunger exactly, more I need to put something, anything, into my stomach. But it's late for small towns. Nothing in Turner Valley will be open except the bar. I swoop down the long curve between Turner Valley and Black Diamond. If the coffee shop is still open, I can grab a brownie or a cookie to tide me over. Tide me over until when is something I haven't considered. As I pull over across from the coffee shop, I see that the squat orange stucco building has been topped with lime green paneling and a yellow and white sign, Subway has come to Black Diamond. When I shut off the ignition and with it the air conditioning, heat pounds through the windshield. Maybe Subway wouldn't be such a bad idea. At least it would be cool. And at least I would be spared the exertion of choice. My parents retired in Kelowna and on the drive there, the Subway in, Col in Golden was often my pit stop. The right time for a pee break and a bright bite to eat. I know the menu like the back of my hand. But beside the coffee shop is the grocer's, an old wood-sided building painted dark forest green that has been there as long as the town has, so far as I know. And in front of the grocer's is a blackboard with a chalk sign, homemade burgers, 550. A burger, I try on the thought for size. That might be nice. But just as I open the car door, a man comes out and pulls the sign indoors. The grill is set up in front of the store in the full blaze of the setting sun. I can't even imagine the kind of heat that man has put up with all day. No wonder he wants to quit. Still, I turn my back on Subway's promise of engineered air and walk across the street to see if the grocer has other edibles for sale. The store sells a little of everything in a dingy, anachronistic atmosphere. It has creaky wooden floorboards and minuscule windows with crooked window frames. The room is stifling, a floor fan trying unsuccessfully to push the hot air out and succeeding only in pushing it around. No ready rep sandwiches in sight, though they have hams and whole salamis and other meats in a case, and a handwritten sign that says they make sandwiches to order. I wander the aisles aimlessly, oppressed by the need to make any kind of decision, until the man asks if I want anything. When I say I'd come for a hamburger but realize he is closing up, that's fine. He says no bother at all, and he means it. There is no grudging in his tone. I follow him outside to where the grill, made from a rusty half-oiled drum, is sending off waves of heat. Fiery red embers wink and sputter at me through tiny holes in the sides of the drum. He opens an old battered roaster, black with white specks. Inside it are huge black lumps of meat and chunks of charred onions bathed in some indistinct dark juice. I feel a faint flicker of worry. Has this been breeding E. coli all day? The orange and green box across the street mocks me. Thank you. And it's been an honor to read with all of you. Thank you so much, Barbara. That was fantastic. Um, I will 
move to our final reader. I always get scared when I say final reader because then somebody's in the back and they go, you forgot, you forgot me. So I don't think I forgot anybody, but they'll let me know if I did. Um, Gina Starblanket. Gina Starblanket is a Canada Research Chair in the Politics of Decolonization and an Assistant Professor in the Department of Political Science at the University of Calgary. Gina is Cree and Soto and a member of the Star Blanket Cree Nation in Treaty 4 territory. She is the principal investigator of the Prairie Indigenous Re Relationality Network, and her research takes up questions of treaty implementation, Prairie Indigenous life, gender, and Indigenous feminism. And um, your book entitled Storying Violence, or do I have it written down? Storying Violence, Unraveling Colonial Narratives in the Stanley Trial. And your co-author is also here um, on that book, Dallas Hunt. Dallas Hunt is Cree and a member of the Wapsusippi uh, Swan River First Nation in Treaty 8 territory in Northern Alberta, Canada. He has uh, had creative and critical work published in the Malahat Review, Arc Poetry, Canadian Literature, and the American Indian Culture and Research Journal. His first children's book, Awasis and the World Famous Bannock was published through Highwater Press in 2018 and was nominated for the Elizabeth Razick Cleaver Canadian Picture Book Award. His teaching and research, excuse me, interests include Indigenous literatures, Indigenous theory and politics, Canadian literature, speculative fiction, settler colonial studies, and environmental justice. Gina and Dallas, are you there? We are, thanks, Jason. So I'm just gonna read a little bit from the introduction of our book and Dallas is gonna read uh, an excerpt from the conclusion. On February 9th, 2018, a white settler farmer named Gerald Stanley was acquitted by Saskatchewan's Court of Queen's Bench for the murder of Colton Bushy, a Cree youth from the Red Pheasant First Nation in Treaty 6 territory. Colton was a passenger in a vehicle that drove onto the Stanley farm on the night of August 9th, 2016. On their way home from swimming in a river, he and a group of friends had a flat tire and drove into the Stanley's yard in search of assistance. A series of alter altercations took place between the Stanley family and two of the male youth who had exited the vehicle, at which point Stanley retrieved and fired a 1947 Tokarev TT-33 handgun into the air. He would later explain that he was firing warning shots to make noise, as he did when wild animals came onto his farm and he wanted to scare them away. By this time, Colton had moved to the driver's seat and was trying to start the vehicle to leave the property when he was killed by Stanley, shot in the back of the head at point blank range. Gerald Stanley's wife, Lisa Stanley, told the remaining youths, that's what you get for trespassing. Stanley's trial saw the unfolding of a narrative that would prove powerful enough to justify his actions to an all-white jury from the Battle Battleford's Judicial District. The narrative crafted by the defense centered around a hangfire, a magical gun that misfired in a, quote, freak accident, end quote, which occurred during what Stanley characterized as a moment of pure terror. The supposed terrorists were a car full of Indigenous youth presumed to be planning to steal or caused damage to a quad that was parked in the Stanley's yard. Stanley's defense lawyer, Scott Spencer, did not explicitly argue that Stanley killed Colton in self-defense, but Stanley's version of events, defense of his property, family, and his own life were recurring th themes throughout the trial. 
He described his actions as driven by a concern for the security of his adult son and wife, which gave rise to a narrative crafted around the chivalry he demonstrated when confronting Indigenous youth presumed to be lawbreakers. We will never know the jury's rationale for acquitting Stanley on charges of both second degree murder and manslaughter. What we do know is that the evidence offered by firearms experts did not support the hang fire situation described by Spencer. And even if it had, Stanley was still not exercising the level of care that he should have been while using a gun. Yet the narratives constructed by the Crown were compelling enough to make his conduct appear reasonable in light of the supposed terror he faced. This book, much like the dialogue surrounding the trial, isn't strictly focused on the death of Colton or the trial of Stanley. What we are interested in are the affective and material realities of the narratives surrounding Colton's death. This is particularly important because the prairies and white rural Saskatchewan in particular are marked by mythical tropes about the virtuousness of its people and the righteousness of its political and cultural formations. Indigenous people are outside of these myths, except when we can be invoked in ways that bolster them. Instead, there are many tropes about Indigenous people that function to naturalize our exclusion, immiseration, and ultimately, death. Storing violence explores the structure and operations of colonialism in the prairies, a process that is historic, ongoing, and systemic. It organizes nearly every realm of social, political, and economic life at multiple scales. Our aim here is to unsettle dominant accounts of Colton's death, framed by narrative of, narratives of settler life in the prairies, and center instead the experiences of Indigenous people. We focus on the particular ways that racialized and colonial logics have shaped Indigenous and non-Indigenous relations in these spaces. To do this, we historicize the present by exploring the operations of discourses of white superiority and Indigenous inferiority in Saskatchewan over time, and by explaining how these continue to shape contemporary relations in these geographies. We deliberately place a spotlight on that which forms the supposedly invisible backdrop of oppression, interrogating the taken for granted assumptions about Indigenous peoples that exist in the prairies and explaining the ways in which they function to configure the lives of all who reside here. This book is an act of restoring as well, a refusal of the dominant ways Indigenous peoples are understood and consumed and of the dominant ways that our stories are told within settler narratives. Narratives of indigeneity are often told within heavily circumscribed parameters as stories of criminality, narratives of deficiency, and or overdetermined and overwhelming instances of pathology or trauma. In refusing these settler narratives, we also resist the frames of palatable indigeneity that are oftentimes requested or more precisely demanded of us by settler audiences. Instead, we restory the narratives that underpin the case of Colton's killing on our own terms, complete with all of its colonial connections and complexities. In doing so, we offer what Mohawk scholar Audra Simpson might dub a resurgent history of indigeneity in the face of settler colonialism and the histories it narrates. And yet, there's so much more that we cannot capture or articulate or that we refuse to. While this book deals with violent acts perpetrated against Indigenous youth, we also want to foreground the incredible courage of the Bushi and Baptiste families in the wake of the indescribable tragedy. We want to foreground the activist on the groundwork of Colton's relatives and the continual dogged advocacy that they do with their relations. We want to foreground that Indigenous peoples, while undoubtedly affected by the processes of settler colonialism, are not passive in the throes of history that we are active agents carving up pockets of livability in a system that demands and facilitates our deaths. And finally, we want to foreground that Indigenous youth went swimming and felt joy in their ancestral territories one day, 
that they asserted their presence on lands that have been a part of them since before they were born. And that acting as an agent of history, as the culmination of centuries of settler colonial rage and entitlement, Gerald Stanley and eventually his supporters worked and have continued to work to stifle that joy. We refuse to let them. Hi, hi. Thanks. Thanks to you both. And um, I, I didn't say it just before, but um, Storying Violence is a finalist for the Wilfred Eggleston Award for Nonfiction, uh, along with Timothy's uh, book uh, that he read from earlier. And um, Harnarayan Singh, uh, his book One Game at a Time, is the third finalist for that award. And Harnarayan, I think, will be reading with us tomorrow. Um, I just want to say uh, thank you to uh, everybody for, for taking the time to read um, your work and to share uh, with, with the people that are watching right now and the people that are going to be watching um, this recording later. Um, it means a lot that we got so many of you in the same virtual space um, for this uh, 90 minutes or so. Uh, congratulations to you all on, on your nominations this year and for the hard work that you've uh, uh, all put into to these books and also just to your your writing careers in general. And I'm gonna put it on the gallery view if people wanna wave. I think you're I think you're on the gallery view if people wanna wave again. Um, I think that worked. So um, once again, thank you everybody uh, for the, that's watching. Thank you everybody for coming. We're going to do this again tomorrow, uh, same time, same place. Um, There'll be links all over the internet. And on uh, the evening of June 9th at 8 p.m. will be our awards presentation where you get to find out all the stuff that happens. Um, uh, because nobody knows until the awards are given out what exactly is going to happen. <laughs> so um, thanks again, everyone. Thanks to everybody in this little in, the, in your Zoom boxes. It was really great to hear you read. Uh, have a good rest of your evenings and your weeks. And um, thank you again so much. Uh, my name again is Jason Norman. I'm uh, with the Writers Guild of Alberta, and I will hit end stream right now. So thanks again, everyone.